What if everything we knew about human history was wrong? Received wisdom is that humans have been around for two, maybe 300,000 years, but that we only start agriculture in the last 10 to 12,000. After that, we have cities, astronomy, numbers, civilization as we know it. But according to a book by David Wengro and the recently deceased David Graeber, that's not quite accurate. They say that cities and what we judge as advanced human culture actually precedes agriculture. The story of prehistory is far more complex and interesting than we thought, and that this has quite remarkable political implications. David Wengro, welcome to Downstream. Thanks for having me on. You're an archaeologist. Um, you teach archaeology at University College London. Is that a job you always wanted to do when you were a child? No, it isn't. Um, when I left school, I wanted to be in the theatre. And I'd, I'd already done a fair bit of that. I think from the age of about 14, I, I fell in love with, uh, with acting in the stage. And I, I joined up with the National Youth Theatre which was a wonderful time because it was the first time as a Londoner, it was the first time I actually met people from all over the country, all over the UK. And um, I did it. I left school and um, got an agent and, and, and did that for a while, then did various other things. And then I, I fell into archaeology more or less by accident. So how was that? Wow, a child actor becomes like, oh, that's a that sounds like a great story. Yeah, I think it was more of a sort of young adult actor. I never, I mean, I've met child actors and yeah. they're a very specific kind of person, okay. but I, it's never quite one of those. Um, but um, what happened basically after trying various other things, including a little flirtation with journalism uh, at the BBC Arabic service um, and various other things, uh, I wasn't really finding a direction. So I had good grades from from school, and I decided to apply to Oxford. Well, that's what I want to go. Best university I can get into, I want to go to Oxford. And I wrote to all these Oxford colleges saying, um, can I come and do English literature? And they all ignored me. Um, and a friend of mine, who it was, told me it's easier to get into places like that if you apply for a subject that's a bit off beaten track and they had just started a new program new degree called archaeology and anthropology which is actually the name of the degree that i teach and coordinate now at ucl so i wrote to one college st hughes college uh, asking if i could do that and i got an interview and i went into this interview with a very formidable uh, woman called barbara kennedy she was a geographer because they didn't have any archaeologists at, at that particular college and she grilled me for a while, and I, I sort of spouted on about how archaeology was my great passion and so on. And then she reached down and produced from under her chair all these letters that I'd written to other colleges saying, can I come and do English literature? I thought, well, I balls that up. But then she admitted me, and wow. um, I was technically a mature student, although I was probably anything but um, in terms of everything else. But I think I was classified as a mature student when I started. And I, I nearly made a complete mess of that, actually, and, and nearly got slung out uh, after um, about six months. But I had one teacher 
it was one of those things where it's just one person actually gets you hooked and gives you the confidence to think, you know, yes, you know, you have a place in this, you can contribute. And that was a guy called Andrew Sherratt, who uh, passed away very young, actually, same age as, as, uh, as David, 59, um, just had a massive heart attack one day, um, but really sort of got me to pull my finger out and um, got me addicted to this stuff. Uh, and I, I didn't really look back after that. Because it's something you hear all the time, I'm sure, that at some point, most people, when they're children, want to be archaeologists. Yeah. I did have, I mean, there's obviously something there. I can remember a school trip to Old Sarum, just on Salisbury Plain. It's one of these great Iron Age hill forts. And I came back from that and went back. I used to live with my grandparents a lot in North London. I remember going back to their place after that. And my head was just full of images. You know, I could see all the different sort of waves of migrations and invasions, and I produced this this sort of tome. This is all pre-computers, so mm. I think I got like a calligraphy pen or something, and sort of tried to create. A, I remember my gran helping me with coffee grinds to sort of age the paper. So you know, there was something there, which is completely irrational, where you just feel an attachment to some era. And I don't have any family roots in in the British Isles so you know it's not like a, a local attachment but you just identify for some reason with a place or an era of history and I don't know why that happens um, but clearly people who choose to pursue archaeology they have they have that in an unusually high dosage. Let's get into the meat of your book The Dawn of Everything. Um, the conventional view is humans have been around for 200, 300,000 years. You can, you can give the specific numbers and the answer. Um, but we've only engaged in agriculture for 12,000 years, 11,000 years, 12,000 years. And that with the advent of agriculture, we then get all the things that we associate with, with modern humans. Cities, numbers, numeracy, literacy, astronomy, civilization. Your book, co-written with the, uh, the recently departed um, David Graeber, says that's completely wrong. Or it's, it's significantly wrong? Um, well, we'd have to pick apart what you said there uh, a bit, Aaron. You know, um, when you say we, we started having agriculture 12,000 years ago, only a very tiny number of people on the planet started doing that in very specific locations, uh, specifically uh, the Middle East, what they sometimes call the Fertile Crescent. Most of the world at that time was still hunter-gatherers and fishers. So, um, you know, actually what you've presented as a summary is a classic example of what we would call a kind of stage theory, where you've got these long periods when sort of nothing happens. Then everything changes. You get the agricultural revolution, populations expand. Then you get cities and everything changes again. Then you get civilization. Um, and one of the things we try to show in the book is that actually the process uh, is much more interesting than that. And you've got people that what are supposed to be different phases or stages of history actually living cheek by jowl, sort of feeding off each other, reacting against each other, and also consciously planning and designing societies according to different sets of values, which, you know, when we talk about civilization and modernity, there's this deeply ingrained assumption to think that it's only us moderns or supposedly moderns you know, us post-enlightenment folk 
who've been able to do that, to actually make a decision about the kinds of societies we wish to live in, and then consciously try to make that happen. Um, and I think that's that's a deeply rooted idea, both in the intellectual, philosophical, and political traditions of the left and of the right in Europe, in the European tradition, let's say. And we think that's wrong. And as you say, humans uh, have been around, as far as we know. Humans who are cognitively just like you and I, same kinds of brains, perfectly capable of having a conversation just like the one that we're having, for something in the order of 200 to 300,000 years. And what we know about most of that time is vanishingly little. Um, but if you think about it, that's extraordinary. I mean, the number of things that could have happened, uh, the number of different kinds of conversations and experiments that could have taken place. Uh, and yet, uh, the way we tend to write about and characterize those early periods is the opposite. It's as if people were existing in some sort of strange haze, just kind of, uh, you know, following patterns or routines until one day somebody invents agriculture and everything changes. And that's the kind of, I guess, conceptual damage that we do to our own past. The, the dawn of everything is is trying to undo. Just to write about even very remote periods of history that we have evidence for, um, as if there were real people in them, which, which sounds like a ridiculous thing to say, but it's very rarely done. You know, prehistoric people are more likely to be compared to non-human primates than they are to people like you or I. And I love this insight which you have, which I'd never ever thought of before, maybe we can go into it a little bit, about foragers, hunter-gatherers, being less parochial, basically, than modern humans. I mean, maybe not today in the age of the internet, but until relatively recently. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little? This is, this is one of the great um, revelations of modern archaeology is, you know, this whole idea that humans before agriculture lived in these tiny bands, sort of isolated uh, pockets of humanity, nomadic, roaming around the landscape, not having much contact is completely wrong. Like we can trace back now in concrete terms, evidence going back tens and tens of thousands of years before agriculture to show that human societies, you know, way even beyond the last ice age were already highly structured over very large areas. Um, interacting, moving things around the landscape. We've got scientific techniques these days, which are pretty good. I mean, you can actually trace people's diets tens of thousands of years ago. You can say whether they moved from a, a coastal environment to a terrestrial environment. You can trace movements of plants, animals, raw materials. We have uh, ancient DNA. Um, so there are many methods by which we can reconstruct a picture of early human societies. And it turns out that the world was highly connected. And if you think about it, this shouldn't be surprising, because of course, one of the first things that, that humans do um, is actually move. Uh, and actually, the word that's usually used is that we colonize the globe, which is a strange term to think of in a way, because there's nobody out there to be colonized, <laughs> but we move and we, we, we somehow find our way everywhere from Africa down to 
South America and eventually Australia. So you actually start off with a highly uh, integrated and connected social universe, which may not demographically involve that many people, but they're finding ways uh, to maintain connections and transfer ideas uh, over extraordinary distances. In a way that in, say, the Middle Ages in Europe certainly wasn't the case. The average yeah. rural peasant wouldn't leave their That's right. Or- and th- this is very interesting because it means you have to rethink scale, like the whole scalar factor in human history. In a way, I think the sort of stereotypical picture that most people have is kind of back to front, where you know, you think you start off with these small isolated groups and then human populations expand and we end up with globalization. It's almost the opposite, actually. If you look at the history of the Middle East, for example, you go from having these big kind of regional systems to a situation where today, you know, if you want to move from Cairo to Damascus, you've either got to work for the CIA or go through, um, you know, about 50 different border checks. Mm. So in a way, actually, Uh, you know, the history of nation states and hard borders, we've become much more enclosed over time. One thing about megalithic sites, which again, I've only really discovered in the last several years, your your book is a part of that, is the role of astronomy. Mm. Um, Obviously, there's the equinoxes and the solstices, but more besides that too, often certain constellations of stars are being sort of aligned and recognized and whatnot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So are we looking then at many, many societies which didn't have agriculture mm-hmm. yet engaged in really advanced astronomy? Because again, that's something people don't really... And navigation. You know, we're talking about human populations finding their way through island landscapes to remote places out in the middle of the Pacific. Of course, you know, they've got to have a superb grasp practically and intellectually, of topography and the behavior of the seas. Um, And uh, yes, I mean, there's no question. And you see it reflected in in monumental architecture from very early periods, which is often laid out uh, in very precise uh, alignments in relation to other monuments, in relation to the solstices. Uh, Here in the UK, obviously, you have uh, famously Stonehenge. that's right. I mean, people were, were clearly uh, more than capable uh, of developing very sophisticated uh, mathematical, geometrical understandings in different ways to the way we do it now. Uh, and the most famous, I guess, sort of discussion of this was the book in the 1960s by Claude Lévi-Strauss, where he tried to suggest that there are basically two different forms of science. There's our notion of science, which begins in the laboratory. So you carve out an artificial environment and you have men in coats or whatever, um, you know, trying to um, generate new ideas and theories which are then applied to the world. And he contrasted that with the way that most human discovery throughout the history of our species has actually taken place, which is a world of discovery in which there are no laboratories. Discovery is part and parcel of social life. It's out there in the landscape, in people's interactions with plants and animals. It's applied from the beginning. Um, And that presumably is how all those early systems of navigation, monumental construction, uh, metallurgy, all of these things were discovered and generated through other systems of knowledge than the one that we're familiar with, which is kind of intriguing in itself. Well, Stonehenge built by people that engage in agriculture? Do we know that for a fact, for instance? That was the consensus until very recently. 
But actually what we found out in, um, in just the last sort of um, couple of decades is that the picture is more interesting. So Stonehenge, by the time it's constructed about 5,000 years ago, uh, farming has already been adopted in the British Isles as an import from the European uh, continent. But then, as in many other places of the world, and again, you know, this goes back to your initial characterization of human history where you get agriculture and then everything changes. The British Isles are one of many examples of where people adopt agriculture and then basically change their minds. Um, so the period when Stonehenge and many other great monuments constructed is actually one in which the populations of this island um, more or less give up the habit of cereal farming, and they go back to foraging wild nuts and acorns and things as their staple plant food. They decide to keep, they hold on to other things. So they hold on to um, the farming of animals, pigs and cattle in particular. There's a site close to Stonehenge called Durrington Walls, where they've actually found the place where people congregated for seasonal festivals and feasted on you know, huge amounts of, uh, of meat. It must have been a hell of a party. And this presumably was at the times when they were also engaging in these big coordinated uh, construction activities that we see there. So it's, it's a more complex picture. They're not farmers or hunter-gatherers. They're some hybrid of like uh, farmer-forager herders or something. So you're saying essentially it's a, a social choice that's being made? It must have been. I mean, I can't imagine any other way in which people from, you know, um, one end of the country to the other turned their backs on a practice like cereal. I mean, how could that happen unconsciously? There's no evidence of any sort of massive climatic rupture or depopulation. It just seems to be people deciding that that's not actually what they want to do anymore. That's quite an that's quite an extraordinary political choice, isn't it? I mean, it is the, the sort of analog today. And Stonehenge would, is quite extraordinary. I mean, there must have been pretty extraordinary things going on for people to even engage in those kind of uh, you know feats of construction. But for a contemporary audience, I mean, the equivalent would be us deciding that the industrial revolution wasn't a good idea, or just you know to stop using fossil fuels, wouldn't it? I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, in, in terms of the social um, implications, obviously, not, they weren't thinking in those terms. But it's actually of, yeah. Uh, and and it, it raises a question, right? Which is, uh, if people have been able to make decisions on that scale in what we are taught to think of as primitive societies, uh, why do we struggle so much with those kinds of structural changes now? Which leads me on to, I, I suppose, the central question in the book for, for our audience, which is a political audience. There are obviously extraordinary political implications if the generic, what you call stagist view of history is incorrect or inaccurate um, because this is the bedrock of most modern political theory from, in different ways, Locke, Rousseau, Hobbes, we can talk about that in a second, but also more contemporary people, you know, the Stephen Pinkers, the Yuval Hararis, because their essential formulation is the more complex society becomes, the more unequal, the more unjust, but it creates it creates more abundance. Therefore, there's a kind of utilitarian argument for it. You know, it's well, you're it's talking you're talking about authors and books who sometimes explicitly model what they're doing on those uh, philosophers of two or three hundred years ago. You know, people actually say, "I am a neo-Hobbesian or a 
neo-Rousseauian uh, take on human history, which is interesting. And it's something David and I noticed uh, around the time when we decided to start thinking about these kinds of issues was pretty much exactly the time of the last big financial crash, about 2008-9. And you know, there was a slew of literature, as you might expect, on inequality and the roots of inequality. And suddenly a lot of those very old ideas, you know, going all the way back to the 17th, 18th centuries, really coming back in quite a surprisingly aggressive way. You know, let's think again about the deep roots of inequality. Let's go back to Hobbes. Let's go back to Rousseau, which, as you say, you know, we're talking about the, the foundational texts of modern political theory. But it's important to remember that they were completely speculative. I mean, they were conjured out of the imaginations of those people with no evidence tangibly whatsoever for the nature of human societies hundreds, thousands of years ago. So it's these are uh, kind of imaginary worlds of, of prehistory, um, which is quite a sobering thought, you know, the idea that modern political thought actually comes out of imagination. And it's imagination rooted in very specific political contexts. You know, Leviathan was written, what, 1651, middle of the English Civil War. And it's partly about what is the nature of society without government and why is government necessary? Rousseau died, what, 10 years before the French Revolution, you know, when he's uh, addressing the question, what are the origins of inequality? It is the burning question of his time. So these are entirely political, uh, you know, they're exercises in the political imagination, which are obviously radical and generative at their time. But why should we be still asking questions that were pertinent in 1754, in 2022 um, is, I think, an interesting question in itself. When we've got all this other information, all this other evidence, you know, why are we still asking the same questions in this slightly sort of sclerotic manner? You're an academic. You're at UCL. I was at UCL as an undergraduate. Oh, yeah. And what are you taught? You know, introduction to political theory, Hobbes, Locke, Plato, Robert Notzick, it's more contemporary political theorists, John Rawls, but who have these effectively are building their thinking on the early liberal tradition of, of Locke and Hobbes. Mm -hmm. And it's basically 101, why you should obey the state. And like you mm -hmm. say, it's, it's, it's based on conjecture speculation, which is several hundred years old. Mm -hmm. And this is at a modern institution in a, in a very advanced Western capitalist market economy, mm. where apparently we believe so deeply and passionately in empiricism. Mm. And yet the very basis upon which we say political, sort of political status quo is legitimate mm -hmm. is nonsense, frankly. It's a good example of, I think, what is wrong with universities quite often, because, you know, round the corner from where you were doing that would have been the place where I worked. So we're talking about what the 19, I can't place you. 2000, you're very ageless. So, so that's, that's yeah, good. So, no, yeah. no, you've, uh, 2003. Um, okay. So around the corner from where you were learning about uh, Locke and Rawls and all the rest of it would have been the place where I work, the Institute of Archaeology. Actually, I think I probably was already just about teaching there um, around that time. Uh, no, sorry, 2003. No, God, no, thank God, no, I wasn't. Uh, <laughs> um, and yeah, um, you know, just up the road from there, you would have had all these people actually studying 
human prehistory. Mm. But you know, it's I, I guess it's unfortunately in the nature of universities to carve these things up into separate departments, which don't actually generate that kind of learning, where knowledge moves in what should be very obvious directions. So, well, how does this stuff look now? in light of what we actually know and what are the implications of that. So I think it's highly unlikely that archaeology students would have been thinking about those philosophers, whereas the students learning about those philosophers almost certainly wouldn't have been thinking about the evidence of deep human history. And I think that is a, that is a, that is a problem. I mean, it's a lost learning opportunity, effectively. But isn't it a failure also of the academics? Yeah. So like... Absolutely, hundred percent. I mean, it just strikes me as completely crazy that you have yeah, yeah. talented professionals teaching this, frankly, nonsense to young people about a really important subject. Well, you could teach it. You don't have to teach it as nonsense. I mean, you could see it as part of a tradition. Uh, you know, it is, it is, sure. it is, it is important to to study it, but you know, within the confines of what it is. And actually, you know, when you look closely at these texts, they're very openly speculative. You know, Rousseau, I think, sort of spells it out somewhere when he's describing a story very similar to the one you started with about, you know, how agriculture trapped us in certain new ways of life and the invention of private property. He says, do not take this as history. This is effectively a thought experiment. And, you know, it's, it's meant to make you reflect on what private property is and its place in the world and its effects on us as human beings. The distinction of mine and thine, if you like. Mm. Um, it's not meant to be a reconstruction. So actually what's happened uh, with some of the other modern authors you mention is also rather strange where you've got what began as sort of radical speculation is now presented as objective truth or even as sort of laws of history. And that's what I think sort of provoked us, you know, David as an anthropologist, me as an archaeologist to think, hold on, this isn't okay. You know, we should try and do something about this basically. And that, you know, that kind of motivated us to, um, to start trying to liberate um, some of this extraordinary body of knowledge from, from these rather siloed contexts, you know, get it out from behind the paywall journals and start piecing together puzzle, which is still very incomplete of human history, but there's already enough pieces there to say that it looks nothing like the stories that we've inherited from the Enlightenment. Let's talk about um, Indigenous American society. Um, again, there's a few more questions particularly around this, which I, I think are so impressive, just the, the, the source material that you cover in the book and things that I've just also learned in recent years again. Let's go back to um, stereotypes and received wisdom. Mm. The idea is that Europeans discover the Western Hemisphere in 1492. We'll leave um, Leif Erikson to one side. and Just came back from uh, Sweden, actually. Uh, more keen. They, they haven't forgotten. They have, no, they haven't. That's, it's, interesting, it's interesting how they do really emphasize that, isn't it, the, the Nordics? Um, we discover a, effectively a backward civilization, which we then broadly exterminate through a combination of guns, germs, and, and steel. Um, that's not quite right, though, is it? No. And uh, I mean, I've been very fortunate in the last year to be able, once travel became possible again after the pandemic, to spend some time in Canada uh, and in the US, uh, including talking with Indigenous scholars and historians from various campuses um, about this. Um, and it's not 
There is a lot in the book I wrote with David about the pre-Columbian Americas um, uh, and about early colonial contacts uh, between European colonizers and uh, native peoples. And um, it's not an area that is actually, you know, particularly within either of our wheelhouses. You know, David's fieldwork as an anthropologist was in Madagascar. My uh, PhD and most of my field experience is in North Africa and the Middle East. So this was a steep learning curve for us, which I'm still very much on. Uh, but it was necessary in order to answer the questions we were asking, particularly about the origins of inequality, which is how the, the project started. Uh, if you look at the literature around the middle of the 18th century, take a figure like Rousseau and the intellectual milieu in which they're uh, debating the ideas they're thinking through. You cannot avoid the Americas, and particularly that part of North America that's now split between Canada and upstate New York, basically the, the Great Lakes region and what's sometimes called the Eastern Woodlands, which is where Europeans uh, encountered societies that were organized on radically different lines. Uh, much more democratic lines uh, with uh, uh, levels of freedom, uh, particularly for women, which were unheard of in European societies at the time, and which clearly had uh, an enormous impact on the European imagination, including on the political imagination. And we found it was impossible, really, to understand what was going on. You know, when we when, once we decided that we didn't want to. Uh, fall into that trap of just recapitulating these questions and stories from hundreds of years ago, we started asking, well, how did they come about in the first place? And that does lead you down a certain line of questioning, which leads to the Americas. And that's why the book ended up with such a strong focus there. Let's talk about Candiaronk. Candiaronk. Uh, maybe you, you, you've got a really good French accent. I've noticed actually in some videos I watched for this. Um, he is an actually existing figure, it seems. Uh, definitely. I mean, you can, if you want to Google it, you can see uh, an image from 1701 of a treaty uh, called the Great Peace of Montreal. And you can see Candiaronk's signature, his mark on it. So what's Candiaronk's importance? Who is he? Candiaronk was uh, 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 very well-known um, figure uh, person of the Huron-Wendat nation, um, which is, is very much still uh, a thing. It has its uh, administrative center, which I, I was lucky enough to be invited to uh, on the outskirts of Quebec City, where they have a small street called Candiaronk en célèbre. Um, so we were joking that maybe we should extend it a bit now because he's, 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 um, he is a... Um, a key sort of um, individual in, in our book um, because we have various independent accounts of this person which tell us that uh, in that time, so we're talking about the, uh, the end of the 17th century, this is someone who's playing a pivotal role um, in uh, diplomacy, warfare, and in um, trying to negotiate a better future for, for his own people in the midst of a highly complex colonial situation with French, English, Dutch colonizers and so on in the mix. Someone who was multilingual and who, in addition to all of those qualities, was clearly an extraordinary intellect and a brilliant speaker. 
Um, and we have various independent uh, accounts of this. Um, but for reasons which are very contingent, um, some of those kinds of conversations and ideas that would have been exchanged between Kandirang and European interlocutors at the time found their way to a much larger audience in Europe. Uh, we know uh, that around that time, uh, the governor of what Europeans then referred to as part of New France, that part of the colonies, would actually invite Kandirang uh, to his table to engage in debates purely for pleasure. He says, you know, I did it to entertain my officers because this guy was just so funny and witty. Um, and they would debate um, many of the topics that would later become central to what we think of as uh, enlightenment thought, you know, rationality versus uh, uh, revealed uh, religion, sexual habits, marriage customs, questions of freedom, uh, the role of money in society. Um, and in the mix of people who witnessed those conversations was a, a minor French nobleman who went by the name Lahontan, the Baron Lahontan, who is a person who went over to the colonies in his youth, I think at the age of 17, lived there for a decade, spoke at least two uh, indigenous languages, um, and was deeply embroiled in the goings-on uh, of, of those tumultuous times, but also seems to have been a bit of a troublemaker, you know, didn't get on with authority, ended up getting kicked out of the colonies and found himself uh, more or less penniless on the streets of Amsterdam. And he writes these books, these sort of travel logs, and finds his way uh, back into favor at court. Um, and uh, one of those books is the one called Curious Dialogues, with a savage of good sense who has traveled. And it features these conversations between Lahontan, playing himself, and a character called Adario, who everyone accepts is based on Kandirong. And in these dialogues, Adario slash Kandirong gives the most brilliant sort of scathing, withering analysis of European civilization. And this is the book that takes off like wildfire and inspires countless imitations. It's, it's a bestseller. It's translated into multiple European languages. Uh, stage plays, which run for years, are based on it. And uh, it becomes the foundation of a whole genre of such dialogues that almost every major Enlightenment thinker uh, had a go at. So they will take the substance of the dialogues and put them in the mouth of some completely imaginary exotic, you know, other person, maybe a Tahitian or Chinese, or, uh, you know, there are many different uh, examples. But the the context uh, that it comes out of is, is a real one of culture, contact, and exchange. And the effects on European thought, uh, we would argue, were explosive. Are so Kandirank, in other words, ought to be considered part of the story of what we call the Enlightenment, in the same way as uh, mm -hmm. Voltaire, Diderot, and all the rest. I mean, importantly, it precedes all of them. So, And it precedes them all by some decades. So you have what you might call a sort of proto-enlightenment salon before the appearance of the, the famous salons in, uh, in Europe. You, you call this the indigenous critique. Um, it seems obvious in, in, in retrospect. So for instance, you know, you have engagement between the Americas and Europe between 1500 and let's say, you know, the early 18th century. 200 years there of, of, of cultural to and fro. Mm -hmm. And... 
clearly there would have been these kinds of dialogues and there would have been some transmission back to Europe. It may not have been as much as one would have hoped or have liked, but it, it would have been significant. We're talking about 200 years. And yet that barely figures in our in our understanding of the exploitation and the colonization of the Americas. It's seen as purely one way in terms of ideas, in terms of capital and humans. Um, but what you say, which I think is actually very empowering for 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 peoples and ideas which aren't in the global north, the most powerful countries, is actually it went both ways, mm -hmm. and that you can actually situate an indigenous American or you know a whole sort of school of thought which is you know coming out of the Americas within that European Enlightenment, which is just I think really powerful. Well, I mean, isn't that, it, that's isn't intellectually earth-shattering, isn't, isn't it? Isn't it odd that we even have to make that point? I mean, you know what. What's the other implication that these people were, you know, either living in, in some utterly different uh, sort of mode of reality, um, which cannot be entirely true, given that we're talking about a period of trade and military alliances and, you know, very intense interaction. Um, it's not controversial to point to the fact that Europeans adopted a lot of material habits from the Americas at that time, uh, many of which are actually linked to the habit of sitting around having those kind of intellectual conversations, you know, smoking uh, tobacco from pipes, drinking caffeinated beverages. Uh, and yet there is a great resistance to the idea that along with those substances and, and material habits came ideas. You know, then you get real kickback and... Um, that's kind of interesting in itself, because all we're trying to argue in a way is that ideas, particularly about democracy and freedom, which European Enlightenment philosophers themselves attributed to the Americas, were actually theirs. And I think there is something disempowering uh, about the idea that notions of freedom um, do not come from the oppressed, or do not come from the colonized, but are something to do with ancient Greece or, you know, somehow sort of rooted in Europe, actually in the soil of the colonizer. I think that is disempowering. Um, and there is something, uh, uh, for those who haven't already realized this, there is something emancipatory in understanding what perhaps should be obvious, that actually ideas about um, uh, uh, how to free oneself from oppression come from the oppressed. Let's talk about some particular places in the Americas. There's one place called Cahokia. Yeah, I was there not long ago, about eight months ago. So around a thousand years ago, this place is the same size as, as London. So about a thousand AD, it's got a population in the tens of thousands. You know, ballpark, it's a yeah, it large uh, Estimates city. are uh, something like around perhaps 40,000 people at, at, at its height um, around the, uh, the 14th century. Yeah. So maybe Norwich or something, you know, it's a largest European city. What happens to it? Um... This is very interesting and a little bit uh, controversial, but what is clear is that having grown and extended, and I say I was walking around in this place with colleagues of mine, including an archaeologist who's worked there all his life, like about 30 years, which was great because when you go there, um, there isn't a lot to explain to you what you're walking around. There's this enormous mound called the Monk's Mound. There are many different earthworks and mounds there. And this thing is huge. Um, and it's in the middle of what is now a, a kind of national park that has a road running through the middle of it. And, you know, this unfortunately has been the fate of, of many important uh, indigenous heritage sites um, in North America. Um, 
you may have a road running through it. Um, you get very good Mexican food at these little restaurants and things. And you're actually standing in the middle of the largest uh, pre-Columbian city, the largest uh, indigenous settlement um, in North America. And it has these great monuments. Archaeologists have, have worked there over the years. Um, it becomes uh, uh, the center of a whole regional system, not probably an empire uh, in the sense that we think about it, but the influence culturally and politically of Cahokia spreads on a, a, a really extraordinary scale throughout the Mississippi Basin. And um, it's clear that certain things are going on there um, which are predicated on uh, um, various forms of hierarchy or inequality. There's a mound which is, is actually full of the bodies of young women who seem to have been ritually killed in, in some kind of horrible ceremony. Um, on the monk's mound itself, there, there's an incredible uh, ability to have surveillance over the whole settlement. And we know that when the site centralizes, the surrounding countryside sort of empties out. So you get these housing districts, which would have all been visible from up there. You get fortifications forming, and it seems to be going in that kind of direction. And then everything changes, uh, and the area is abandoned, depopulated. Archaeologists for generations have referred to the whole region around Cahokia as a sort of vacant quarter. Um, and it appears to have been... Um, uh, almost forgotten, I guess, to the extent that um, we don't even know, you know, the name of this place, the genuine name of this place. It doesn't really feature in any clear way in later oral histories. So people in some way or other turn their back on Cahokia. And there are various theories about this to do with environmental collapse, um, which are, uh, in my opinion, not entirely compelling. Um, and uh, increasingly, I think people are looking at this situation in the same way that they're beginning to look at the, uh, the so-called uh, Pueblo civilizations of the American uh, Southwest, uh, where again, you have these um, you know, quite big uh, centralized sites, which are subsequently abandoned, is that, well, why shouldn't we at least consider the possibility that people are genuinely uh, walking away? and deciding to create a different uh, a different kind of social order, different kind of social arrangements. And actually, when you start looking at it that way, it enables you to join the dots or make a bit more sense of the kinds of societies that Europeans did eventually encounter a few centuries later in the same regions, some of which were still very hierarchical, like little mini Cahokias, but others had developed uh, this highly egalitarian uh, way of living, which, you know, the natural assumption uh, for Europeans to make is that they've just always been that way. Um, but of course, we're talking about people with fully developed historical consciousness who do have in their own histories the history of Cahokia and the whole regional system that it generated, which goes almost as far north as the Great Lakes. So there is a hierarchical past there that people have, for one reason or another, turned their backs on and created a different form of society. Um, and uh, that's something that we um, we dwell on a bit in the book because it just you know it enables you to get past this idea 
um, that we're talking about people who are somehow you know frozen in one pattern of culture uh, or sort of have no history. There's also this other great example of I'll get this right, Teotihuacan, which is I think that's very good. But I'm told by my Mexican colleague that um, even Mexican scholars don't always pronounce it quite. There's Teotihuacan, which she tells me is better, but you hear Teotihuacan anyway. Teotihuacan. I, th- I, th- I think we're okay. I think we're fine. Yeah, it's passable. Yeah. Um, so this is a city that, in terms of its size, scale, magnificence, it rivals Rome. Um, very centralized, very authoritarian. Then, then something changes, and you you sort of imply it's almost like a, you know, this is the Paris Commune and the sort of Western Hemisphere. But potentially, there's a big sort of political shift. Well, the archaeologist, who a guy called Rene Milan, who uh, produced this extraordinary map of Teotihuacan, which we um, were very fortunate to get permission to reproduce the map, so you can see it in the dawn of everything, and he. Um, directed one of the most incredible ground surveys ever undertaken in the history of archaeology because we're talking about absolutely vast settlement which at its height uh, around uh, 300 AD would have had a well conservative estimates say 100,000 people I've seen estimates that go up to double that big place and uh, Milan himself and some later scholars uh, argued that there was a, a, a a turnaround, like a complete reversal of, uh, of fortunes for that population, where it begins uh, on a very hierarchical path. You know, if you go there today as a tourist or just Google some pictures of the site, you'll see the two great pyramids, Pyramid of the Sun, Pyramid of the Moon, this other great structure called the Temple of the Feathered Serpent. Um, these are all later names that the Aztec actually invented for Teotihuacan. We don't know what they were originally called. So it begins in this very hierarchical way. And again, you've even got evidence for ritual killing and human sacrifice. They buried the bodies of captives under the foundations of the pyramids. It's quite disturbing with their hands tied behind their backs, and they built these structures on top of them. But then something changes uh, around 300 AD, 250, 300 AD. There is no more monumental construction on that scale. And all of the labor and resources that presumably went into building great temples and pyramids go into something else. And that something else is housing. And they cover the entire settlement on a grid uh, formation with beautiful housing apartments. Um, These are uh, uh, apartments which are low-rise. So when I talk about apartment compounds, we're not talking high-rise. We're talking something more like a, a villa with a number of a small number of nuclear families, big central courtyard, subfloor drainage, gorgeous murals on the walls. Actually, when archaeologists first started investigating those housing complexes, they thought they were palaces. And then they realized that everybody in the city was living in a palace. Um, now, how are we to conceptualize this? Um, we don't have uh, uh, any detailed written sources from the time. Archaeologists have tried in various ingenious ways to sort of reconstruct what was going on. Um, But what you can say uh, is that people in that city uh, from that point onwards had a really good standard of living and that it was generalized to uh, the whole urban population, which is pretty extraordinary. Uh, And we know, uh, you know, you talk about guns, germs and steel. 
if we skip ahead uh, some centuries to the um, the beginning of the uh, the Spanish conquest, when we do have uh, eyewitness uh, chronicles and uh, uh, accounts of the kind of cities that existed in that region, uh, from say um, the 16th century onwards. Um, there are a whole different range of them. You know, we tend to think about Tenochtitlan and Montezuma and sort of Aztec Empire, and that it's all very hierarchical. Actually, and we, we go into this in the book, the city where Hernan Cortes and the conquistadors make alliances that enable them to go and challenge the, the might of the Aztec Empire is uh, a city uh, by the name of Tlaxcala which had a relationship to the Aztec capital that was a bit like Athens and Sparta. One's very hierarchical, the other one's very democratic. Tlaxcala clearly was a republic of some sort with its own parliament. And we even have records uh, in Spanish um, of the kind of debates uh, that went on there. And this just doesn't feature in our world histories. You know, we're quite rightly taught that the fall of Tenochtitlan was, uh, in, in a sense, you know, the beginning of um, Western global domination. What we're not taught is that one of the things, you know, one of the steps on that pathway was this extraordinary encounter between uh, European conquerors and an indigenous urban democracy of sorts. And I've got no hesitation in calling it a, a democracy. Um, at a time when uh, you know cities run on that kind of basis were extremely unusual in Europe itself, and you know none of this is terribly sort of secret. You don't have to delve very deep into the sources. We've got the letters that Cortes himself wrote back to the King of Spain, saying, "I found this place. It's it's weird. You know, there's no king. It's it's maybe a little bit like some of our Florentine or Venice. You know, it's run on some other principles. All this stuff is out there." Um, but um, it really isn't given the prominence that you know you think it it probably ought to have. I mean, that sounds what you're describing in. Um... And you know, these are obviously people who have no connection whatsoever to the Mediterranean, you know, ancient Greece, Rome. Yeah. Nothing to do with it. This is an indigenous form of of urban government. What, what you're describing in Teotihuacan. Um, Sounds like a revolution, potentially, or a social revolution. I'm not yeah, there, there are. Yeah, absolutely, and and there are um, experts uh, on uh, on that site uh, who have uh, have suggested that that, that may have been uh, the kind of thing that took place. There's no absolute consensus on it, in the way that there's generally very little consensus in archaeology. But I think uh, uh, everyone would accept um, that there is a profound transformation that takes place there, and that's kind of fascinating because you know one of the things that we're told in the traditional narrative of human history is that once you have very large, dense human populations, and once hierarchy sets in in those kind of settings, it is irreversible. Whereas here we seem to have a situation where there is a reversal. Yeah. Like you say, in um, in, in in Western political history, people say there isn't a successful slave revolt until Haiti, for instance, which is, you know, as far as we know, is broadly correct. But that may have not been the case in the Americas. You make this great sort of rhetorical question in the book, which is, well, we talk about the abolition of slavery. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, we talk about the story of Simone de Bolivar and Toussaint Louverture and the abolitionists and whatnot. But perhaps it was abolished 
numerous times Many the Americans. Times in history, yeah. I mean, th- I, th- I think this is just sort of classic Eurocentrism, you know, the idea that, yeah, maybe these things were happening elsewhere, but they don't really happen until they happen in a European context. I mean, it's just a kind of sorting and filtering mechanism, um, which allows you to say that Europe has some kind of monopoly on progressive politics, which, you know, even if taken to an extreme length, can become a justification for colonialism, genocide, and all the rest of it is say, well, at least we were bringing this kind of, um, you know, these sort of progressive concepts of democracy, um, which were completely lacking in all these other places. So, you know, despite the fact that we decimated them, ruined their landscapes and, and, and killed most of the people, at least, you know, we sort of, again, you're back to stage theory, at least we moved them on. At least we got them out of that, 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 that kind of malaise that they were clearly stuck in. Well, no. You know, one of the things we show in the book is that uh, far from it, you know, there, there's a huge array of uh, conscious political experimentation going on outside European contexts. And we have evidence uh, for it. Your area of expertise is West Asia, Northeast Africa. Um, although you're very lucid on the Americas and elsewhere, you had to research it for this ginormous 700-page book. Um what I want to talk about is you've got sites like Gobekli Tepe in um, eastern Turkey. You've got these incredible megalithic sites in in Malta. This might sound a strange question because it's not in the book. Is it possible that if cities precede agriculture, that you have Homo sapiens living alongside archaic humans, potentially in urban environments? Because you know Neanderthals were around until relatively recently in Europe. Is it plausible that there were I mean, permanent settlements that sort of see them featured together, or is that just something we can never even speculate on? I wouldn't personally refer to Gebekli Tepe, which is much later. I mean, there's no Neanderthals around at that point. So we're going back about um, to about uh, 9000 BC here mm. in um in the Middle East. And I wouldn't personally characterize Gebekli Tepe as a city. Uh, I think uh, we're dealing with uh, uh, a site uh, which is clearly uh, permanently settled, but where you have periods when people are coming together and aggregating yeah. and coordinating their activities in very large numbers. Um, okay, but, okay, so I'll, I'll rephrase it. Yeah. It's a built environment, which is a permanent built environment. And is it plausible that you had humans operating alongside archaic humans in those in those kinds of spaces? Well, if we go back, let's say, a bit further, a lot further, like 50,000 years ago, um, we know at that point there are at least four, probably five different species of humans around the planet. There's us, there's the Neanderthals, there's the Denisovans, there's Homo floriensis in Indonesia, which are the little people sometimes playfully called hobbits. Um, And there's also some more recent discoveries from Luzon Island in the Philippines. So this is a situation with no modern parallel when you've actually got different varieties of of the human species interacting. We know genetically that there was uh, interaction of the closest possible kind. There was reproduction across those species, some of them. Um, So yeah, I mean, and actually when you go back even further, to the origins of our species, the picture now um, looks rather like that. So we're going back now to Africa, to the African continent, where, you know, there used to be this idea of sort of mitochondrial Eve and that there was one ancestral savannah environment where suddenly we became humans. Actually, the modern 
uh, fossil evidence and genetic evidence suggests that that's wrong and that actually we evolved on the African continent but in multiple different environments between about 500,000 and 200,000 years ago coastal environments, forest environments, and savanna environments. And there were periods of isolation and periods of contact between ancestral human populations, which could be very long. So you actually get a, a huge amount of physical variation. You see it in the fossil evidence. And if you think about the physical variation, imagine what was going on with language or child-rearing habits or social customs. So again, you know, it, it flies in the face of this very entrenched philosophical habit of trying to reconstruct the original form of human society. There wasn't one. And just the panoply of experimentation and social forms, which is kind of inconceivable to us, but actually that's where we that's where we come from. Yeah, we're we're a product of this um, this kind of composite uh, composite of, of different subspecies and different traditions. And let's talk about pseudo-archaeology, if that's the right word. There is such a word, yeah. pseudo-archaeology. Pseudo-archaeology. Yeah. Pseudo um, and I, I feel like, particularly with the rise of the internet, YouTube, it's, it's probably increasingly something of an entry point for people who eventually end up in sort of more mm -hmm. formal archaeology is not the right word, archaeology proper, I suppose. They might, that might be the gateway that then sends them to somebody like yourself. Maybe, yeah, could well be. Why do you think pseudo-archaeology is increasingly popular? Why do you think there's, there, there's clearly, a, there's clearly a, a desire for it in the cultural zeitgeist? Well, let's be clear what we're talking about, because I don't think it's immediately obvious to a lot of people what the difference would be between what you're calling pseudo-archaeology and what people like me do and teach uh, for a profession. Um, Pseudo-archaeology, I guess, or at least my mental picture of what you're talking about, is probably largely written by people who've never actually taken part in an archaeological field project or you know, aren't actually engaged in producing any of the evidence that you and I have been talking about uh, today, but who, uh, for other reasons, um, choose to present uh, a reconstruction of the past. Um, which is often presented as rather mysterious or even conspiratorial, as though people like me, uh, you know, the reason we devote our adult lives to learning all these skills and teaching archaeology is because we want to cover up the truth. Okay. Um, and that the truth is actually available to people who don't do that right, who may have had entirely different career paths. And, you know, I don't want to come off snobbish. You know, there's nothing wrong with people speculating and reaching their own conclusions. But actually what is often presented as some great new revelation is actually just a very old, rehashed, obsolete theory that comes out of what was probably mainstream archaeology, you know, sometime in the early 19th century, like, you know, lost city of Atlantis, that kind of thing. There's nothing new about those ideas. And, you know, as I hope comes across in our book and in our conversation, the real evidence is fascinating and it's puzzling and it's challenging on its own terms. Mm -hmm. You don't need to, you know, um, come up with confections and elaborations to make it interesting. Just try and get to grips with it is already challenging and stimulating enough without you know, trying to surround it with some uh, fabricated air of mystery. It's always the way with conspiracy theories because you, you, you talk to somebody and they'll say, oh, this person is controlling this and it's this 
secret cabal of these people. And look, there's a great deal of exploitation um, in the world. And yes, the powerful regular system in, in extraordinary ways, which actually we can discern and understand. You don't need to... You don't need to be talking about the Bilderberg Group or I, 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 God knows what. No, but you know it's really important, to, and I, I do get a little bit irritated sometimes with colleagues of mine and the way that they respond to what you've called pseudo archaeology, um, which is to say, um, you know, we're the scientists; we know best. And um, if you believe any of that stuff, you're just a lunatic. Well, I think I think that's um, you know it's obviously true in a sense, but you have to look also at the history of our own disciplines, um, which again, as we've been talking about, are very strange in the way that they will deny humanity and consciousness to whole populations and whole groups of people. You know, when, when Europeans first saw those monuments at places like Cahokia, they couldn't fathom you know, the idea that native people would have constructed these things. They came up with all kinds of wacky theories about Leif Eriks, or, you know, Vikings coming over or, or you know, whatever it may be, uh, lost tribes of the Israelites. And those sort of ideas were coming out of what was then mainstream European scholarship, you know, in Egypt, where I've done a lot of work on the, the origins of uh, ancient Egyptian civilization, the period before all of that, you know, the pyramids and mummification, all the, the famous stuff, is what archaeologists call the pre-dynastic. I mean, it's almost as if you don't want people to be interested. If you go to a conference on the pre-dynastic, they'll be talking about like, you know, we measure this kind of pottery and it's slightly different from that kind of pottery. And, you know, it's all a huge turnoff for anyone who's trying to figure out what's actually going on. Um, and if you go even deeper, you know, where I work at UCL, where you studied, you have the Petrie, Petrie Museum, if you ever stuck your head in yeah, there. Yeah wonderful place, um, which is now very openly engaged in looking at its own history. And Flinders Petrie, the archaeologist uh, who it's named after, was a eugenicist. He believed that non-Europeans were intellectually inferior. And he was very into this whole business of uh, phrenology, you know, measuring people's skulls and that sort of thing. And he actually had a theory in the late 19th century that ancient Egyptian civilization could not have been created by Africans, and that there had been an, an invasion of what he called the new race. Okay, So we're talking about theories which are at least as wacky as the kind of stuff that you'll see on Netflix now, but they're coming from within our disciplines. And it's easy, frankly, to you know empirically refute those kinds of theories about some lost race of people from Atlantis or whatever, but I think that's only half the battle. We also have to introspect uh, a bit uh, and ask the more difficult questions about how, how did those spaces open up in the first place in which that kind of theory is able to gain traction? And I, I do think a lot of that does have to do basically with racism and the idea that people long ago on different continents could possibly have been as intelligent and creative as us, albeit in different ways. But there are more ambiguous examples of this, aren't there? So, you know, there's, there's people out there who say that the Sphinx is significantly older than the pyramids. It's still constructed by people in Egypt, you know, not by a, a sort of race of aliens. And that actually we're really wrong and it's thousands of years older than we presently think. Would you call that a conspiracy theory? 
No, it's a completely legitimate line of questioning. Um, it just happens, I think, not to really lead anywhere terribly interesting. I mean, there are ways of investigating that sort of thing. And you would also have to put it in the context of what we do know about what was going on before the pyramids and the construction of the Sphinx um, in the Fourth Dynasty, which is fascinating in its own right, you know? I mean, I've been to a place called Um el Kab, which is in the, the south of Egypt, which is where you have the earliest royal cemetery, what's sometimes called Egypt's first dynasty. And it is fascinating. And you've actually got a very disturbing phenomenon there that we talk about in The Dawn of Everything, which is the burials of the earliest Egyptian kings and queens, these great uh, uh, sort of holes in the ground with all these elaborate uh, staircases and furnishings, completely surrounded by smaller sort of cubicles where other people were buried. And I'm talking about hundreds, maybe even thousands of other people who it is generally thought by archaeologists were ritually killed in order to be buried around the tombs. Wow. And it's not just people, actually. One of the earliest Egyptian kings goes by the name which we can read in early hieroglyphs. Amusingly, his name is Aha. Aha! <laughs> um, and it's transcribed into English as A-H-A. Um, and Aha's tomb actually has not only human beings in pits, there's also like three lions buried in it. Nothing to do with the England football team. Um, and, um, you know, that... Isn't that fascinating enough? You know, let's try and get our heads around what's going on there, which we do in chapter 10 or something of the dawn of everything. Let's talk about that. That's kind of intriguing. You know, why does the beginning of what we call the ancient state involve this extraordinary, carefully orchestrated violence against people? Um, and, you know, the Sphinx has no place in that context. Let's, but we can reconstruct something of what was going on, and it's perfectly interesting in its own right. But I suppose a pseudo-archaeologist respond to you, they'd say, well, this civilization is older than the First Dynasty, perhaps. They could say that it's a, it's a lost civilization. Well, I mean, again, we know actually quite a lot about what's going on. It's actually one of the things I wrote my PhD about is uh, it's the fourth millennium BC, so that long period that's referred to as pre-dynastic, as if all they were trying to do was build dynasties. Um, we actually know quite a lot about what was going on in those periods. And um, you can go and see it. I mean, go to a museum, go to the, the British Museum, go to the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford. It's fascinating stuff. You know, they had these beautiful artistic styles. This is one of the things I wrote about in my PhD, actually. You know, we all get obsessed with the monuments, the Sphinx, the pyramids. Um, what you see if you focus on ordinary people, and particularly their burials, because we have a lot of evidence for how people were treated in funerary rituals. Egypt is incredible in that sense that you can trace the evolution of a ritual. It's a funerary ritual. You can trace its evolution over thousands of years. We know how people were buried. And what you see is kind of fascinating in the build-up to the time of the, the first dynasties and the first pharaohs and pyramids. People lose a lot of the capacity to conduct their own rituals. So you start off with a situation where almost anyone can be buried like a prince or a princess with sort of gorgeous, elaborate ornamentation and very individualized pottery and beautiful cosmetic articles. And with the uh, rise of the of kingship and the pharaonic state, people seem to lose a lot of that kind of aesthetic uh, control over their own lives and no longer able to conduct their own rituals, which is kind of fascinating. 
You see something similar with the rise of the Inca Empire, where we do again have you know, Spanish uh, colonial accounts and descriptions of what's going on, where uh, in order to perform an important ritual like a, a marriage or a funeral or to honor your ancestors, you need certain resources. Um, you need uh, 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 bread and beer, what's called chicha, uh, in order to um, just perform the ritual and do the right thing. Uh, but of course, not everyone can get their hands on those resources in the same way that in Egyptian funerary rituals, at a certain point, you have to have bread and beer. Um, but to have bread and beer, you know, you have to have access to uh, estates where cereals are farmed and you have uh, plow agriculture. So people who can't actually uh, look after their families in a cultural sense, I'm not talking about biological survival, but you know, who, ca who can't actually complete their, uh, their necessary social rituals, begin falling into debt, uh, relations of debt, um, or will, go, will have to go to extraordinary lengths and make sacrifices just to be able to do that. And that seems to be a big part of what creates hierarchies and systems of dependencies is people either abdicating or somehow losing control um, over over their own um, yeah their own sort of basic uh, basic kind of life rituals or life cycles what future projects do you have lined up uh, I'm involved with various um, sort of side projects at the moment I, I don't find the time right now to do uh, much research in depth. So I'm actually involved with projects which are not strictly writing projects, but just trying to keep myself, you know, moving on uh, a bit. So I'm involved with a, a new collaboration with a group that you might have heard of called Forensic Architecture based at Goldsmiths uh, College. That's an interesting one because they do mostly human rights work um, and they use architectural theory and principles of modeling to go to court over um, a whole range of different issues from uh, deforestation in the Amazon. They did the Mark Duggan case in Tottenham, uh, extrajudicial wow. killings. Those were archaeologists. Architects. Architect, architect, sorry. Architect, architecture. Forensic architects. No, I have heard Forensic of Forensic architecture. Uh, A.L. Weitzman, his amazing team. Um, so he came to uh, an event, a big event in Germany, in Berlin, about the dawn of everything, which was called the uh, Zivilisationsfrage, the civilization question. It was a big three-day event. And uh, the curator of that uh, invited uh, A.L., who gave a presentation that just sort of blew me away. And when we got back to London, he's based here, you know, we just sort of went out for coffee. And we had the most incredible conversation of, you know, his take on the book. It's all very much through the lens of what they do. And at first I couldn't really see the connection because the scales are obviously radical different. But he read our book as a kind of extended case study in forensic architecture in the sense that it's an anti-state narrative where as in some of the cases I've mentioned, you know, you can't always prove definitively the other version of events, like the non-police version or the non-official version, but you can just poke enough holes and cast enough doubt on the official narrative so that it starts to wobble, doesn't stand up in court, in the court of judgment in our case. Um, and in the process of making it wobble, you open up other possibilities for speculation. And I thought, well, this is intriguing. You know, it's right. I mean, what it's describing is a very similar kind of logic to our book. Um, 
So we decided to collaborate on something. So we're trying an experiment. I can't say too much about it right now, but I'll be able to say more about it early in the new year. And it's going to focus on these uh, incredible archaeological sites in Ukraine. In Ukraine, you have cities going back as early as the earliest ones that we know of in Mesopotamia, in what's now Iraq and parts of Syria. So we're going back uh, around 6,000 years ago. Uh, you have these huge cities that present no evidence of centralization, not in political or economic uh, terms. Um, and there is a big debate about whether they should or should not be referred to as cities or rather as something else, like overgrown villages or mega sites. You know, you get lots of sort of euphemistic terms being used. And essentially what it makes you do is reflect on what we mean by a city. Um, and what are the assumptions that are baked into that? So we're going to produce a, a kind of installation which models these rival accounts and debates. doesn't necessarily try to prove one version but which visually kind of immerses you in the questions, if that makes sense. So that's one project I'm doing. Uh, I've also been talking, I mean, one of the things that's really um, just been kind of overwhelming about the, the response to the dawn of everything is the creative response. And I'm, I'm not talking particularly about um, people writing or you know academic writing or even essays, but musicians. Uh, artists, filmmakers. I was just the other week with a, a, a fantastic uh, singer and artist. She's based in Paris, uh, Yasmine Dubois. Her stage name is La Founder. And um, she wrote a song called The Dawn of Everything. And she came here to London and performed it, uh, you know, a few weeks back at the, uh, the festival hall. They had the Women Life Freedom event for human rights in Iran. And she performed it there, and I, I was very upset, actually. I was just getting back from Chicago and couldn't quite get through my jet lag to actually physically make it. But we met up afterwards. And, um, you know, that kind of thing is... Um, it's incredible, you know, to me, and I, th I think it's a huge uh, tribute to David, you know, to my late co-author. Uh, I think he had that incredible capacity to take some of these rather obscure topics and concepts and write about them in a way that touched people and made it personal uh, and made them want to engage and, and create. And in a way, I see it all as a kind of extended tribute to him, uh, which I've just been a lucky sort of passenger. Final question, just on David, if that's possible. Mm. Um, David... Graeber was your co-author on this book. He tweeted in 2020, I believe, how mm. he'd finished the manuscript. That's right, yeah. He, he put out a um, sort of faux Jim Morrison quote. Yeah. Uh, My brain is bruised with numb surprise. We finished or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. And then he passed away a month later. Yeah, about three weeks, three weeks after we finished the manuscript. So what's it been like to publish a, a globally best-selling book? I mean, it's been, it's been translated into multiple languages. You've worked on it for a decade alongside somebody, and then they're not there to share in the success. Yeah. Um, well, you know, you have to kind of, I have to uh, sort of pinch myself in two senses. There's, there's the kind of good pinching yourself that, that, that the reception is so extraordinary and, you know, the, suggested to me recently by someone who's apparently got some figures that were, you know, getting up to a million copies worldwide, which is just 
can't really get your head around it. But then there's also the other kind of pinching yourself, which is very painful, which is, you know, just constantly having to accept that David's not around to witness any of it. Um, and he was really looking forward to it. I mean, this book, he couldn't wait to get out there and have these kinds of conversation. You know, it should have been the two of us really sitting here uh, having fun with, with you shooting the breeze about all this stuff. So it's very painful and very paradoxical. And the only thing that I can really hold on to in the middle of it all is that he would definitely want me to be out there working hard, talking about the book, telling people about the book, and just trying to get the work across uh, as well as I'm capable of. So you're doing it partly for him as well when you go that extra mile. Yeah, yeah, 100%, yeah. David Wengro, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, thank you. independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navara Media from just £1 a month. Head to navara.media forward slash support.